five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to Season 4 of the podcast. And what a season have we got planned for you. To start, each episode will center around the space economy. So naturally, we're changing the name of the podcast to the space economy. The other big change we're making, at least from what you, the listener, will notice right away, is that the podcasts are getting shorter. Each podcast will be no longer than 35 minutes. And since we're going to have shorter podcasts, starting in November, we're going to have more of them. We're going back to our weekly format. But instead of publishing on Thursdays, you'll be able to tune in every Monday morning. Our guest for the first episode of Season 4 is NASA's Chief Economist, Alex McDonald. But first, a word from our sponsor, MDA. Serving the world from its Canadian home, and global offices. MDA is an international space mission partner and a robotics, satellite systems, and geo-intelligence pioneer with 50 years of experience developing custom technology solutions to some of the world's biggest challenges. Today, they are leading the change towards viable moon colonies, enhanced Earth observation, communication in a hyper-connected world, and more. To learn more, visit MDA. Dot space. Okay, let's listen in to my conversation with Alex McDonald. Welcome back, Alex, to the podcast. Well, thanks, Mark. It's great to be back. All right. To start, uh, let's go back to something that happened earlier this year. I want to ask you about uh, your new role that you undertook this past spring. In April, NASA announced that you would become uh, the program executive and primary liaison to the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, or CASES as it's known, which manages the ISS National Lab on the International Space Station. So what is your role with respect to CASES and the lab? And, and sort of unpack what the ISS lab is within the station. Yeah. Well, so thanks for the question there, Mark. It's a, it's a great one to start with. Uh, so the NASA liaison role is one that's actually prescribed uh, in, in U.S. law through the 2010 Authorization Act. And it was that act which created the National Lab as we know it today. And the role of the NASA liaison is to be the primary point of contact for NASA as, as the agency uh, with CASIS uh, and to set the overall objectives for uh, the, the partnership that uh, really operates the International Space Station's National Lab. And, and that's a partnership between NASA and uh, the operating manager of the National Lab, which is CASIS. So you know, what, is, what is the National Lab? The National Lab is uh, a designation which says that 50% of all of the on-orbit research resources of the National Space Station should be used for essentially non-NASA research. And this is a really you know, exciting development uh, because it was really uh, an indication that the part of the purpose, 50% uh, of the purpose uh, of the space station is gonna be for 
allowing companies to utilize the space station, allowing other government agencies to conduct their research on the space station, to allow university professors to uh, investigate new phenomena, uh, and that these investigations, these payloads, these projects don't have to necessarily be NASA projects. And that's, that's, that's a big shift for, for the agency. And over the last 10 years, uh, we've actually seen an incredible amount of growth in new users of the space station through the national lab mechanism. Uh, a lot of companies whose business now relies on using the space station, something that we never really had before. Uh, and we've actually seen a lot of increasing use from uh, other government agencies, specifically the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. And so the, the role of the program executive uh, is, is actually a, a new one that says that essentially the NASA liaison um, should be, you know, uh, should be someone who is the managing uh, kind of uh, entity on the, on the NASA side, that it should be managed like a program. And that's, that's a shift from where we started from. Uh, but that's, that's, that's the role as it stands today. And it's frankly been a, a, an exciting, exciting new role because, uh, you know, not only do you get to work in one of the most exciting areas of, of spaceflight, which is, you know, working with our operational space station, but, uh, you know, the, the process of getting research to the space station involves actually having to figure out how you pack all the cargo uh, into the cargo vehicle and how you get all the research experiments, uh, onto these relatively small volumes and uh, getting involved with the, uh, the program specifics at that, that kind of uh, car packing level has actually been a real, uh, real pleasure, even though it's a very complicated Tetris problem. So um, of that 50%, how much of, of the actual ISS National Lab is actually being used now? I mean, are you getting, is it 20%, 50%, 70%? How much room for growth is there for uh, companies and for uh, researchers to, to use the, the space? Yeah, so great question. So uh, for the last couple of years, actually, uh, the National Lab has used its full allocation of up mass and crew time, uh, which are the two main measures we use for use. And, and that, of course, now is, is kind of creates its own challenges because, you know, 10 years ago, uh, we wanted to create a, a, a line of researchers out the door. Uh, and, and we didn't know if we'd be able to get there. Well, <laughs> 10 years later, uh, we've got there in spades. We're now oversubscribed. There are more valuable, worthy payloads of science investigations and technology demonstrations that want to use the ISS than we have resources to use. And so that's created some new challenges in terms of prioritization and, uh, you know, frankly, making sure that we can, we can get the payloads up there in a timely manner. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's a good problem to have. That's the problem we wanted to have. Uh, we now have, a, have a, a national lab that, in some respects, is bursting at the seams with really exciting payloads from its partners. Now, in, in terms of the limitations, um, with the upmass and the crew time, um, can you increase those? So, uh, great question. Uh, we're actually set to have an increase in the crew time available, uh, which would happen once we have our crew one uh, crew there available, uh, since we'd be increasing the total number of crew members on the station. So that enables us to have more crew time available. Uh, but it's important to remember that uh, the pipeline of, of research payloads is still constrained by the cargo vehicles. And so one of the things that we're thinking through right now is how do we best take advantage of 
the increased amount of crew time that is provided for by, by commercial crew providers now coming online. Uh, do we want to spend more time for, for the, the astronauts to work with specific payloads, right? So uh, do we want to be able to have our payloads designed in such a way that, that, that the astronauts in orbit can really tinker with them and make them uh, optimized, right, for, for maybe in-space production applications? Um, personally, that's, a, that's an area that I think is really exciting and has the potential to uh, deliver real uh, significant results and, and increase the pace of innovation. But that's a, a real significant change in the paradigm. Right now, uh, because the crew time has been so constrained, we've actually been telling all of our payload providers to basically design their payloads uh, for as little crew interaction as, as possible. In fact, they, they like that because it means that uh, you know, they, can, they can kind of control more of the environment, so to speak. Um, so, so these are the kinds of fundamental questions that we're now asking. And, and so this is, this is one of those exciting shifts now uh, that commercial crew is enabling. Right. It's enabling us to think about uh, potentially doing research in very fundamentally different ways than we have been over the last 10 years. Oh, yeah. So uh, let's frame this within the arching overarching theme of, of the podcast, which is the space economy. Um, yeah. okay. The space station is a very expensive endeavor on an annual basis. When we're talking about the space economy, and in this case, we're talking about a, an orbiting lab in, in low Earth orbit, are we... Going, I mean, I'm trying to to, to to understand the financial dynamics of this. Um, how much in how in terms of finances, how much commercial activity is really happening on the space station? Is, are, is it still just a trickle? Are, are we still in the really early early phases and? Uh, you know, it'll be five, ten years before we get to something where there's a substantial revenue source coming uh, from these activities. Yeah, so so great question. And where we are right now is we are seeing a very small number of companies who are uh, using what's called our commercial use policy, uh, which is a, a a completely separate policy from from the ISS National Lab. Uh, using commercial use policy for uh, essentially uh, flown items and, and, and product photography in space. Uh, using that policy to kind of take uh, pictures of, of, of items. And uh, right now we're still in the, in the kind of hundreds of thousands of dollars for those things. Um, the big area that I think folks are interested in seeing how, how much it can grow is uh, what are called private astronaut missions. And private astronaut, astronaut missions uh, happen when essentially uh, private individuals or private company contract with a commercial crew provider, like SpaceX or Boeing, and then fly uh, a private crew to the space station, right? And NASA uh, recently has, has announced that it is open to two such missions per year. Uh, this is a pretty big shift from where uh, NASA has been in the past. Um, you know, although we have, of course, now had the demo two or I should say demo, uh, yeah, demo two mission to the, to the ISS, uh, you know, that was a NASA mission. We haven't actually had a private commercial crew mission to the station yet, uh, but we're open to having a couple of years. And if those happen, uh, then you'll start to see uh, companies paying, uh, you know, some of the use, the use fees that NASA has established, um, subsidized use fees to encourage these types of missions to, to happen. Um, 
And I, I think it's it's important to set our expectations right here. I mean, we we funded a couple uh, of studies, about ten of them actually, a couple of years ago, that really looked at the waterfront of of where the revenues could come in for a new space station, right? Not for the ISS itself, but for a next platform, and even for a next commercial platform in Leo. The uh, majority of these studies basically said that the NASA and the U.S. government is, is probably going to have to be the anchor tenant in order to ensure that we continue to have U.S. presence in space. Uh, and, and for me, you know, I, I try to take a long-run view on this stuff. I, I think that's okay. Uh, and, and in fact, I think it's really encouraging that, that we now have a, a new policy in place, uh, which, which resulted from a NASA Department of State and Department of Commerce strategy that was submitted to the National Space Council that established that it is U.S. policy to have a permanent U.S. citizen presence in lower orbit. You know, if we step back for just a moment, that's an incredible statement, right? It, it says that, you know, while we're celebrating 20 years of permanent presence of, of humans in lower orbit with the ISS, uh, if that policy is, is made real, you know, that, that milestone is, is exciting partly because that means we're almost halfway to you know, 50 years of continuous U.S. presence and, and, and that we have as a national goal to make that happen. Uh, once that that's a policy, the, the question then becomes, well, what are the best mechanisms for achieving that, right? How much uh, do we have to secure as, as, as kind of government anchor tenancy to make sure that that happens? Uh, but I think it's really important to kind of start from that principle, right, that we always want uh, crew uh, or citizens in low Earth orbit and that we then work through the best ways to do that. Right now, the way we do that, of course, is the International Space Station. And uh, we are now, with our new commercialization program, starting to make progress on different development efforts related to building a new platform. Uh, the first award for that was the use of the Node 2 forward port of the ISS uh, to Axiom, uh, who has a plan to uh, build a private habitat module to be attached to the space station. We also have plans for that module to expand to potentially become a free flyer platform of its own. Uh, NASA also has plans to release a, a, another solicitation for uh, funds for uh, independent free flyer platforms that may not want to use uh, nodes of the ISS, that may just simply want to be launched as independent free flyers. So you know, we, we recognize that the, the ISS uh, is not going to be able to be the only home we have forever. Uh, and so you know, thankfully, we're now starting to really seriously make investments in uh, the designs and the developments for a new platform. And I think the hope would be that, that for a next platform, even if NASA is uh, an anchor tenant for that platform, that having it being commercially operated will allow for that company to go out and find other customers. And you know, even if the, if the contributions from other customers you know, may only be a few tens of percent of the total uh, required costs, you know, that's a, that's a meaningful cost savings. And we may find out a cost savings simply by uh, having commercial companies, you know, use, use new best practices. So I, I actually think that the, the, the process of building the next kind of permanent home in, in, in lower orbit is, is really one of the most exciting challenges uh, in front of the whole industry. So um, we interesting to see where it all goes. Now, it, it sounds like the reality is that uh, anyone who has an idea of building a commercial space station standalone at this point and who's touting this for the next five to ten years, it's not really reality. The space station is where we need to build off of for the time being 
because of the economics. It's just really expensive to get anything up to the space station. So the question is, how long will the ISS be able to survive? And uh, will it be enough time so that a new or more than one commercial space venture or private part or private public partnership comes about where we're building new space stations one or two or whatever it may be uh, and they may take some of those uh, modules that have been attached to the ISS as like you say free flyers and maybe use that to build the basis of of these new stations do we have enough time and, and and to think about it you know i'm talking you know 10 years 15 years 28 years is there enough time to to get the economics in place to make that a reality so that we don't stop having a permanent presence in in low earth orbit yeah so great question and, and it's one that's talked about in uh, washington dc a fair bit uh there are two kind of basic basic timelines to look at obviously uh, one is, you know, how long can the ISS keep operating? And then the other is, how long does it take you to, to get a new platform in place? Um, you know, on the former, uh, certainly, uh, provided that, you know, we don't have any, any significant issues, um, it, it seems plausible, certainly, to, to be able to operate the vehicle uh, you know, through the end of the decade. Um, currently, there's, you know, language in, in the House and Senate bills that have not, not yet passed into law, but they're, they're looking at extending the ISS to... 28 or, or, or 2030. Currently, the ISS uh, policy is, is good through 24, and, and, and that's why people are talking about these next steps. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see where things land on there, but from a structural perspective, um, I've certainly not heard anything that, that suggests that it, it couldn't possibly uh, go through the rest of the decade. Uh, but then the real question is, how quickly could you get a new commercial platform out there? And there's a lot of folks who are very optimistic that you can get it done in a few years. Uh, personally, I tend to, to look at the a commercial crew program as an interesting metric on that, which, you know, commercial crew program took a, a relatively well-known product, which is a, a capsule, a space capsule, equivalent to the type that we've had before under Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, uh, modernized, but, but, but essentially the same type of thing. And uh, there were, there's a lot of optimism that could be on a few years. And uh, at the end of the day, it, it took about a decade. And that's actually pretty pretty good timeline, actually. Um, I, I think that that's actually a, a pretty respectable timeline. And you know, if I was a betting man, I, I suspect that uh, you wouldn't be able to shave too much off of a decade um, for a, a, a new platform to be developed and fielded. And that's you know that's that's not that's that's not just accounting for all the development complexities. It's accounting for some of the political complexities, some of the budget budget complexities. So um, you know that's. That's just my personal take on 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 the landscape there, and uh, you know I'd be delighted to to see any companies uh, prove me wrong and, and and field something quicker. Right. So we we sort of I sort of caught us off track a little bit there, uh, going on a much bigger picture uh, discussion, which I was going to go into a little bit later. But so I'm going to pivot back just a little bit uh, to the ISS National Lab for a second, sure. uh, and, and sort of ask you this question, which I should have asked a long time ago, but which is, you're NASA's chief economist. Why are you in the role that you're in with the ISS National Lab? <laughs> Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for thanks for that question. Um, you know, I, I think 
I think it's really because the ISS and the ISS National Lab is in some ways a bit of its own microeconomy. Um, it involves a lot of different types of exchanges going back and forth between different actors. It's, it's not a full market economy, right? Because the users of the, of the National Lab, they don't have to pay to use it. But there uh, are, are dozens of companies on the supply side. Uh, there, there's over 20 different uh, commercially managed facilities on the ISS and through the National Lab that these companies uh, basically get access to their R&D capabilities and, and are able to uh, conduct you know, business with them. Um, there's also you know, multiple different actors on the demand side. Uh, there, uh, as I mentioned, are, are a couple of different government agencies that are very significant users of the National Lab, the NSF and NIH. Uh, combined, the two of them have spent over $40 million supporting research uh, that has ultimately flown on the National Lab in the last few years. Um, and of course, then there's also multiple different companies on the demand side as well, right? Companies who uh, want to conduct research on the space station. And, you know, we additionally have, uh, you know, the, the, challenge, the, the classic challenges of economics, which is the allocation of scarce resources. <laughs> in this case, the allocation of scarce resources relative to uh, cargo space and cargo upmass, and a particularly scarce and, and valuable resource, which is astronaut crew hours. Uh, and so, you know, the National Lab, uh, you know, initially it had been conceived of as something that might potentially become an, an independent a self-sustaining uh, kind of corporate entity. And that was kind of part of the idea in the original 2010 Authorization Act. But in the last 10 years have kind of told us that that, that doesn't really work, that, that actually that expectation that it would be something that would be able to be you know, paying for it, itself in terms of uh, commercial revenues is just not really in the cards. But what it has proved itself to be very valuable uh, in is in being a public entity, a public service entity, uh, that provides access to all sorts of different entities that want to use the space station for innovation. And in that role, it has been incredibly uh, valuable. Uh, there are, as I said earlier, I think a number of companies who have using the space station at the core of their business. You know, that's a, that's a new phenomena in, 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 in human history. You know, we, we, we didn't have companies that, that every year were using Skylab. To, to make their business work, or, or even frankly, for Mir. Uh, and so I, I think you know, this level of economic maturity is something that we're, we're very you know, pleased to see. But as I also mentioned, we've got a lot of changes in the landscape. And so we're going through a phase right now where we are you know, kind of uh, reprogramming the National Lab more towards this, this public you know, use facility purpose and also really targeting things like in space production applications, right? the idea that uh, we might be able to find something that is so valuable to do on the space station or, or on a future space station that you, you figure out how to produce something and then it's so valuable that you produce it again and again and again every year. Um, you know, so there are ideas in this, in this area that, that, that range from making fiber optic cables to uh, printing retinas. And we don't yet have one of those things yet. Uh, we don't have something that's so valuable uh, in microgravity that we do it uh, uh, again and again and again, other than, of course, research and, of course, science and, and uh, also launching CubeSats. But, but using the properties of microgravity to make something fundamentally new, that's, that's something that we're, 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 we're kind of on the cusp of. And, and we're seeing lots of promising signs that 
something like that might be possible. And so one of the next kind of major goals is, is, is using the National Lab to uh, lay out the roadmaps in some of these areas and then really uh, making a concerted push to making them happen. Because I'm, I'm personally a believer that if we can get even one of these applications as part of a terrestrial supply chain, whether it's a terrestrial material supply chain or a terrestrial knowledge supply chain, uh, if we can get one of those applications, it will really change people's minds about the fundamental value of flying in space and conducting microgravity research. All right. So you've actually touched on uh, and answered part of my uh, next question, which is fantastic. Uh, you, you beat me to it. Um, but, you know, all right. So it, it, the reason why you were brought into the position in part was because, well, Cases was having some problems. There were some uh, changes that were needed. We're now six months uh, after the announcement. And at the time the announcement was made, well, we weren't expecting a pandemic. So now we've, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, the global economy has uh, taken a, a, a hit and it could take even more of a hit and depending on who you listen to in the, in the coming months. Um, when you took over the position, there were a bunch of action items uh, that were that you were given. How has progress on the ISS National Lab uh, happened in in the six months, or has there been any progress on on what your action items were? I should say, and has it taken a hit from a economic standpoint, or are there? I mean, you just finished telling me a little while ago that you're maxed out on the up mass and crew time. So uh, I'm going to guess that maybe it hasn't taken a hit in the short term. Yeah, I would say that we've, we've managed to adapt uh, pretty well to um, you know, virtual work uh, through the National Lab, in part because actually the National Lab had already been a, a relatively virtual institution. It's uh, As an entity, it's got folks in in California and Houston and Florida, and of course, you've got the JSE team that's, that really is part and core of, of the National Lab team overall. So uh, I would say that we've, we've adapted pretty well. Some of the payloads that, that had been National Lab supported payloads have, have slipped. But as I said, because we're, we're really still uh, you know, full up on, on payloads in the pipeline, that, 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 that hasn't affected our, our, uh, our, our issues related to making sure that we're making full use of our, our, our National Lab resources. So. Uh, I, I'd say we've, we've, we've been pretty pretty fortunate in that regard. Um, you know, in terms of progress, I, I think actually there's been, been a lot of uh, great progress. And, and to be clear, you know, the, the independent review team found you know issues not just with cases of management, but with NASA's management of the of the ISS National Lab as a whole. And so, you know, we're, we're taking a lot of actions on our side within the agency to to really live up to our part of the part of the partnership. And, and it really is a partnership. It's it's a partnership between two entities to achieve really an important public uh, purpose, which is um, making sure that, that you know entities across the nation can get the most out of this unique facility, which is the National Space Station. And so you mentioned the action items, and I, I'll you know go through just briefly some of some of the progress we've seen on that. Uh, you know, one of the action items was to work with Cases on its uh, on, on 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 kind of getting new executive management into the organization. And uh, you know, one of the things that happened not too long ago is that we got uh, essentially a majority of, of new board members on, on the board of directors, which is the uh, responsible managerial uh, group for the cases organization. And it's, you know, four, uh, I should say five, because uh, there's a recent one added, five excellent uh, new board members with deep space experience, um, you know, including an astronaut and a lot of folks who uh, were involved with uh, microgravity research as well as national lab research for the DOE, 
so we really got a great uh, new board team in there, and it's been a pleasure to work with them on a number of the challenges that we have in front of us. Um, another one of the action items that we had was uh, really standing up a user advisory committee. And uh, we, we put out a call, or should say case has put out a call for applications for this user advisory committee, which uh, closed, uh, I think, uh, earlier this week. Um, and that's a, a really great sign because, you know, it means that we're moving forward with this really important entity that was identified as needed in the independent review team, which is a, a user's advisory committee. Right? Uh, and this committee, uh, you can kind of read the charter for it online. It's got about five subcommittees. And the subcommittees are in the areas of uh, essentially program lines that, that we see as being critical for the, for the National Lab going forward. Uh, there's going to be a subcommittee on science, right, which is going to be making sure that we can use the National Lab for the critical groundbreaking scientific research, particularly from other government agencies. Um, we're going to have a subcommittee on technology demonstration, which uh, ensures that uh, companies and, and other government agencies who want to use the ISS to demonstrate their own technologies in space can, can be able to do so. And, and that's actually one of those areas where we've seen uh, really a, a lot of productive use. Um, a number of companies have used the ISS to demonstrate their technologies and then subsequently went on to raise private capital. A couple of examples of that are Launchpad Medical, which used the ISS National Lab to demonstrate its unique bone adhesive technology in microgravity. And they subsequently went off to, to, to raise private funding. And, and another example from a very different technology area is uh, the, the communication satellite company Link, who demonstrated their, uh, their transponder capability on the ISS and then subsequently went off and raised uh, money there as well. So, so technology demonstration is a critical critical area, and there's going to be some committee on that. Uh, last couple ones are on, on education outreach. Uh, education outreach is another one of the really um, uh, really productive areas that I would say the National Lab has really been excelling at actually over the years. Um, you know, there are really exciting uh, engagement initiatives that you can see, such as Story Time from Space, which uh, actually has had a real spike in in, in um, viewers since the since the pandemic started, and that's uh, you know, basically a set of YouTube videos where astronauts uh, read kind of, you know, K-12 to uh, books um, that are about STEM uh, to, to kids from space. And um, some of those are actually just really, really great. And, and we've got some of those videos that have hundreds of thousands of views. Um, so, you know, there's, and there's also ones in the education outreach area that, that have students actually using the ISS as part of their, their classroom education. Um, so... You know, a really exciting area that I, I actually think that there's a lot of potential for growth in that, uh, particularly as we, we have potentially more kind of virtual education engagements. And then the final subcommittee is in the area of uh, uh, basically commercial facility management to make sure that all of the companies that have uh, commercial facilities on the ISS have uh, a venue to uh, both talk to each other and, and also make their, their interests known to, uh, you know, the executive director at CASIS. So that subcommittee kind of system then, you know, kind of rolls up into an overall committee. So it's, it's very much like the NASA advisory committee uh, in its organization. And, um, you know, that's something that we haven't had in the past. And so we, we just had the, the proposals in. Um, Case is going to go through those. And, and then we look forward to working with them on, on actually setting that up here, um, you know, hopefully by, by, by the end of the year for, for first meeting. Um, last couple ones on the on the, the to-do list, so to speak, uh, another one of the important action items was getting new proposal guidelines and evaluation processes for each of those five uh, program lines that I mentioned earlier. And actually, that's been a great one where we've had uh, a lot of uh, support from, from people across the agency who, of course, have a lot of best practices in terms of proposal evaluation and, uh, and selection. 
right? Making sure that the, 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 the criteria for evaluation are clear to proposers and to reviewers and making sure that, uh, you know, you've got clear lines of evaluation. So um, a lot of work that's going on there, Cases has been doing an excellent job of uh, really putting attention in that area. And uh, personally, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, the, the day when some of those uh, those new proposal processes go live because that'll kind of be the real real start of the new, uh, of the new era, so to speak. Um, and then, of course, you know, our main instrument for working with cases is, is the cooperative agreement itself. And, and we've begun uh, looking at the revisions there that, that we think is going to be important. Um, and, of course, one of the, the key ones that I've already mentioned is just this recognition with the NASA that, you know, the purpose of the National Lab is to conduct important science and technology projects uh, that are of value to the nation and of value to, uh, you know, its, its societal and overall economic health, right? And that, you know, the, the goal of the National Lab is not for it to become some sort of uh, self-sustaining business, right? The goal of the National Lab is to, to help businesses across the country uh, achieve their goals in space and to also really prove out the fundamental value of microgravity. Um, and so related to that, you know, as I said, there's, there's going to be a, a new focus in the annual performance goals on, you know, developing roadmaps for in-space production applications. Um, that's an area that I've worked on uh, fairly extensively back when I was just a program executive for uh, the Emerging Space Office, and uh, you know we've, we've really seen a lot of growth in that area. Um, the, the SBIR program at NASA and the ISS NRA selections from earlier this April really were all in that area. And so, you know, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that uh, you know in five years we may really have a, an application that uses microgravity as, as part of a terrestrial supply chain in some way. So. That's the uh, that's the set of things that we've been working on, and uh, you know it's, uh, it's it's a great team that that, that we're working with uh, across the agency, and then of course with cases, and uh, yeah, I think we're I think we're making a lot of good progress. Thank you, Alex, uh, for that. Uh, thank you for being on the podcast, and um, um, we will book you in to talk about the Leo economy and the lunar economy as it's part of the bigger space economy. Sounds good, Mark. Thanks a lot. Uh, pleasure to be on again. Okay, that's a wrap on the opening episode of Season 4 of The Space Economy. Our next episode will be available on Monday, October 26th. As always, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq.